This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. President Biden saying in a tweet the U.S. would excel his or would exceed, excuse me, his goal of administering 100 million vaccine doses in his first 100 days in office. Tim, also, we saw U.S. cases and hospitalizations dropping dramatically, suggesting that measures to interrupt transmission, they are working at least for now. Fingers crossed. Yeah, for now. Fingers crossed. The big question is, are we sort of out of the woods at this point from the latest peak? That's something I've been thinking about a lot. Yeah, and a lot of people saying it could be an, another rough 12 to 14 weeks because of variants. Yeah. Let's check in with Dr. Peter Alpern, VP over at Doximity. It's a professional medical network for physicians. He joins us on the phone in San Francisco. That's where he has a private practice. Dr. Alpern, good to have you here with Tim and myself. How are you? What are you seeing in terms of the number and severity of cases as well as the rollout of vaccines? Uh, Nice to be on the show. Uh, Thank you so much. Yeah, in San Francisco, we are um, seeing a decrease in general. So a decrease in the number of hospitalizations and also, importantly, um, improved um, ICU capacity, as well as um, the death rates from COVID starting to decrease. But of course, death from the illness is a lagging indicator. So that's something that does take, you know, several weeks to sort of start to come down after we see the number of patients being admitted uh, come down. In terms of vaccinations, um, we uh, were had set up uh, many vaccine sites here in San Francisco and in the Bay Area, but like most of the country, we are also prisoners to the uh, um, the amount of vaccine that's made available to us. And so, just recently, um, San Francisco's had to temporarily um, pause on vaccinating um, the uh, citizens of the city and county uh, simply because of a lack of vaccine. So, so here we are at the at the where daily levels are basically at their lowest levels in months. Um, Doctor, does this have to do with vaccine? Does it have to do with the fact that we're weeks after a holiday and the post-holiday bump that happened is now going down? Why are we seeing the decline here? All of the above? Yeah, exactly. It really is an all of the above um, uh, situation. So obviously, um, as people have um, the gatherings of around Thanksgiving and Christmas have sort of wound their way through the system, uh, and we and people were pretty good about not trying to get together for the Super Bowl. Uh, we seem to have um, experienced um, sort of the decline that we expected. And absolutely, vaccinations um, are having an, an effect. If you really think about what vaccination does, it's really about reducing that really severe illness and making it so that people who do catch the um, the COVID catch coronavirus and leading to COVID will end up having um, more of a flu-like illness, but will not have those extremely severe reactions, which of course can um, ultimately and unfortunately lead to death. What are you thinking as far as timeline for when we will see widespread inoculation, given that the Biden administration made this announcement today and that, you know, despite early speed bumps, it seems to be like we are uh, on a relatively good trajectory here? Yeah, so um, that's a great question. You know, um, on on Doximity, what we're seeing is, you know, we have the advantage of being able to see the conversations among um, hundreds of thousands of physicians. And what we're seeing is a general... Um, belief that with the new vaccines coming online with AstraZeneca and some of the other producers um, bringing on supply of vaccine, 
um, that we should be able to make a dent over the next um, several weeks to months with uh, just an increase in supply. So that's the hope. But as they say, um, you know, vaccines don't prevent illness. Vaccination does. And um, so it is going to still be incumbent on all those local jurisdictions and uh, health plans and insurance companies and everybody pitching in to be able to get those vaccines in everybody's arms. Dr. Alpern, are you in favor of dose stretching policies, so stretching out the interval between the first and second doses? Yeah, so there's been a lot of discussion around that. Um, that's not something that I'm absolutely an expert on. I, I, I believe I follow what's um, being um, uh, you know, broadcast and written down by the CDC. Mm-hmm. And at this point, that is not something that sits in favor. And I know that uh, there's a lot of um, experts in vaccines um, who are having a very um, uh, you know, robust discussion about this. And really, from my position um, as a person who is, is delivering care, what I would basically do is just really follow their guidance. What about schools and opening schools? Yeah, opening schools is um, is obviously on the forefront of every everybody's mind and, and every parent's mind. Um, you know what we really need to do uh, for schools is getting is you know get our teachers vaccinated, um, and and I know that a lot of places are doing that as well. Um, I know there is a lot of. Uh, data to suggest that uh, bringing people, um, bringing kids back to schools um, is is actually very, you know, a lot safer than, than people may think. Um, but I do know that, uh, um, you know, getting teachers and other school personnel uh, vaccinated is really the key to that whole process. Uh, I want to just end talking a little bit about uh, variants here. Um, how concerned are you about the spread of mutations variants uh, that we've seen already exist here in the United States? Um, so I think the variant um, is situated. The, the issue with variants is, is 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 interesting. So most of the variants that we've seen don't seem to show um, an increased virulence or, or severity. What they show is an increased ability to um, you know cause uh, um, contagion. And so um, I think uh, all the studies so far um, that have been done on the existing vaccines show that these uh, vac- existing vaccines are effective. Right. Um, but but I think that the um, I think the we're going to have to wait and see. Obviously, right. this is very new to everybody else as well. Um, I do know that patients are concerned, and I do know that patients are asking all about these kinds of things. Right. And I think what they need to do is to try to interact with their physicians um, by any means necessary. Right. Make an appointment or get a telehealth. Got it. Got it. Got to run. Dr. Peter Alperin, Vice President Doximity, on the phone from San Francisco. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic. On Bloomberg Radio. No doubt about it, Tim. A top story on this Tuesday, the energy crisis scribbling power grids across the U.S. And we're seeing blackouts leaving about 5 million customers without electricity. Uh, it's all because of unprecedented cold weather across Texas and other states that are normally pretty warm this time of year. And get this, there are global links to this. Mm-hmm. Brian K. Sullivan is Bloomberg News weather reporter, and he joins us now on the phone from Boston. Um, Brian, let's start out with just the big question, right? Like, how, how did this happen, the wet weather-wise? Why is it so cold in so many parts of the country that doesn't, don't usually see temperatures like this? So uh, during the first week of January, there was a burst of warm air over the North Pole, and that may sound um, a bit of a, a, a paradox, but warm air will come in over the North Pole, and what this does is it displaces the uh, colder air up there. The You have the polar vortex, which is like a girdle of wind that keeps the cold in the North Pole. This warm air will weaken that, and it allows the cold to spill out. So this has been weeks in the making, but it's, you know, it finally got here at the end of last week, and it's really dug in now. 
All right. So that on top of how come the power grid couldn't deal with it? Well, that's a good. That's a good question, I and mean, that's one of the ones that things that uh, a lot of people are looking into. And part of it is that the cold was just so severe when it got into Texas. Um, a lot of these places just aren't equipped. In you know, the infrastructure isn't equipped to deal with such bitter cold. You know, in the north or the northern Great Plains, for instance, they're used to seeing temperatures go down to single digits and whatnot. But in Texas now you have equipment failing and, you know, it just turned into a cascade. So is there a climate change connection here? Is it too early to tell? Um, It's more a question of too early to tell. I mean, there are people who study the Arctic and they've been studying the the warming up there, the fact that there's a lack of sea ice and, uh, for instance, Judah Cohen at AER, and he says that there's definitely a climate change um, connection here. Other scientists want to look at it longer, want to take more studies before they uh, make a commitment. Hey, Brian, one thing I want to ask you about is the Texas Railroad Commission, uh, Jim Wright, uh, our commissioner, he told Bloomberg TV that renewable energy sources such as wind turbines are diverting resources away from reliable fossil fuel sources like natural gas. So I, I want to ask you, you study this, is alternative energy sources partly to blame uh, we have a story on the system right now uh, by our colleagues, and I, you know, that that wasn't the conclusion I drew after reading the story. Was that, um, you know, I, I, I didn't really see that in in uh, their reporting, so I wouldn't I wouldn't want to comment on that further. Is it more that the power grid problems and limitations and aging of you know, which is not a new story, Brian? You know this well. You right. know, is it just? I mean, we've been talking about this for years, for decades. Right. Well, I mean, you know, it's not just Texas either. I mean, you right. remember over the summer where it was extreme temperatures in the other direction, hot weather that caused all these problems in California where they had issues. And uh, there have been other issues in the Northeast as well. I believe Long Island a few years ago had mm-hmm. some severe issues after some severe weather events. So I think, you know, we're seeing the chickens are coming home to roost, I guess, is what I would say. Hey, Brian, um, what needs to happen with the grid, with infrastructure in California, in Texas, and other parts of the country to make sure that this type of thing doesn't keep happening? The scientists tell me we have to accept the fact that we live in a changing climate and a changing world, and we have to prepare for it. Um, Insurers tell me this as well. I talk to a lot of different insurance companies, and they're always saying the same thing. The world is changing, and it's changing at a very fast rate, and we have to prepare for it. Um, Every insurer I ever talk to, they say, prepare, 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 prepare. And, you know, none of them dispute climate change. They say that it's coming, it's Mm -hmm. here, it's now, and it's a problem. It's why, really, climate change, for such a long time, people are like, well, it's, you know, not a financial story. It's not an economic story. And, yes, it is. And we have definitely seen it, you know, Brian, just quickly over the last few years, how much so it is. Oh, I totally agree with you. I mean, I think the the climate change is a financial story, and mm-hmm. to look at it from any differently is is the wrong conclusion right. to take. All right, because it's going to affect the banks and everyone else. Totally. All right, Brian. Thank you so much. Really appreciate your reporting, Brian K. Sullivan uh, of Bloomberg News, joining us on the phone from Boston. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Yeah, you're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Carol Master along with Tim Stanovic. Impossible Foods cutting its suggested retail prices by 20% at U.S. grocery stores. Uh, this move seen as key by the company's president, Tim, to get people to try the brand and keep on coming back. That's me. 
That's you. Yeah. You said Full disclosure. Two pounds over the weekend? Yeah, two pounds. Two pounds. Uh, all right, so let's get into it and let's see <laughs> what he has to say. Impossible <laughs> Foods President Dennis Woodside is with us, joining us on the phone in Menlo Park, California. Dennis, by the way, former COO of Dropbox, was the CEO of Motorola Mobility, put in charge of leading its transition after its acquisition by Google. Uh, Dennis, so nice to have you here with us. How are you? And tell us about this strategy. What was the catalyst? Uh, well, first of all, thanks for having me. Yeah. And Tim, thanks for being a customer. <laughs> uh, so the, the catalyst, look, you know, our mission is to completely replace uh, animals in, in your diet. And for us to do that, we have to produce a product that tastes great. We have that, but it has to be priced right. And people, consumers are very price sensitive when it comes to their meat and the meats that they purchase in grocery stores. We've scaled so quickly over the last year. We've gone from 200 grocery stores to over 17,000 that we've been able to get a lot of efficiencies in our supply chain and, and uh, drive our costs down. So we've, we've passed those costs on to our consumers in the form of a 20% price decrease. We don't think this will be our last. We have to compete with animal uh, animal products, so we're going to do that. So, so when will it be as cheap as uh, ground beef? Well, if you think about what we, what we do, we take plants and we turn them directly into meat. And what the animal does, it's, the animal's kind of an intermediary that uh, that that requires a lot more land, a lot of water, a lot of labor, a lot of transportation, oil, gas to move uh, cows around, that sort of thing. Uh, so in theory, our product should be much lower priced than, uh, than cows over time. But it just takes time for us to optimize the supply chain to scale up. Uh, you know, animal-based uh, meat today is less than 1% of the total meat consumed in the U.S., uh, but that's going to change pretty rapidly. And as that does, the cost for the whole industry, including us, will come down and we'll be able to compete much more aggressively on price. But timeline wise, though, is there are you thinking, you know, in years that you can count on one hand or or is this like a decades long progression? Absolutely. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Years that you can count on one hand. There are portions of our product now or elements of our product now that are are at the cost of the cow. But there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of processing costs and transportation costs, packaging, all those things that we have not yet fully optimized and that take that just take time and scale to get right. So the packaging, what, what the actual uh, product shows up in on shelf, that's expensive. Uh, but as you get bigger, the, those costs come down. So that's what I was going to ask you. Is it just a case of when you're selling more, Dennis, the math just changes. When you're selling more product, the costs go down. Is that what it comes down to? Or is it a, is it a case of being able to squeeze even more costs out of the current systems? It's a little of both. So what okay. we do, what we've been able to do over the last year is go back to our suppliers uh, and negotiate better prices because we're, we're driving a big part of their growth. Uh, we've also been able to get better utilization out of our factory. So we're running three shifts a day instead of two. Uh, and you amortize that fixed cost of the factory over more products. And that allows you to take your, take your price down over time. Hey, I'm curious. And we don't see that stopping. That's just going to continue. I'm curious too, Dennis. Have you guys done some focus groups with customers who are just like, it's too expensive right now. It just, I can't do it. I want to do it, but I can't. So people, so first of all, uh, over 80% of people who are uh, trying impossible for the first time, they're coming, they're meat eaters. So, yeah. so they are, they are substituting impossible for, for all kinds of meat products, not just ground beef. But and when we when they try it, the number one thing that they say they love about the product is the taste. It tastes just like beef. It's got the same nutritional profile as beef. The one thing that they say that they they don't like as much is the price, and that is absolutely a barrier to to repeat and uh, repeat purchase and frequency of purchase. But if we can get the price right, you know that's a pretty pretty obvious lever to pull to to grow our our volume and, and continue to scale. 
How do the habits of, of how people are, are eating this type of product, how did they change or have they changed during the pandemic? Well, you know, so a year ago, we weren't even available in retail. And when the pandemic hit, we realized that the retail, or we were available in 200 stores. We realized that we needed to scale up really quickly. And uh, what we noticed was that consumers were, were uh, flocking to plant-based products. They, they were cooking more at home, and they were willing to try something different. They had a little, maybe a little bit more time to cook, or they were cooking, in, and in the past, they were, were, would have been eating out. Uh, so they were open to trying uh, new products, and that's why our sales have, have really taken off at retail. And what we're also noticing, obviously, there's a lot more uh, delivery activity, uh, consumers buying Impossible on digital platforms, whether it's direct delivery from grocery through Instacart or they're buying uh, finished uh, entrees through DoorDash. So, so we're seeing growth across all of those areas. The one area that's obviously been impacted uh, quite a bit are the smaller restaurants, which have, which have really suffered. Hey, talk to us too, Dennis, about collaborations. I'm curious what lasting traction you are finding from some of the collaborations and partnerships that you have been doing. We know all the folks in kind of the alt food space have been linking up with the likes of whether it's a Taco Bell, uh, a McDonald's, and you guys I know had uh, teamed up last year, no, in 2019, I think it was, with Burger King for Impossible Whopper. So I'm just curious how those are are helping you in your mission. Yeah, so we, we have, uh, Impossible's now available uh, pretty broadly in the U.S. BK, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you mentioned Burger King, White Castle, Red Robin, Qdoba are just a handful. We added Starbucks, a Starbucks breakfast sandwich uh, in the middle of the pandemic in June right. of last year. And we've, and we've seen that uh, product do incredibly well, exceeding both of our expectations. So, uh, you know, these, these partnerships are very important, and every restaurant operator is realizing they need to have a plant-based meat option on the menu. Consumers are, are asking for, for, for choices and asking for alternatives. And so it's at the top of the top of agenda of every executive in the, uh, in the, in the uh, QSR space that I, that I talk to for sure. Uh, and those who don't have a plant-based meat option now are absolutely considering one. Dennis, what is the difference between... Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods. Well, in terms of in terms of taste, taste of in terms of taste of product, I should say. Yeah, the two things that consumers tell us is, is first of all, taste our product tastes just like meat. And survey after survey shows that the the, the liking scores, the preference scores for our product versus animal based meat are relatively even. So people have a hard time telling the two apart. The second thing that that chefs tell us is it, uh, the product handles just like ground beef. The color when it comes in raw, the way it transitions from a, a pink or reddish uh, raw state to a cooked state, the way it sizzles, the way it smokes, all those things. And, and, and that's uh, mostly due to the intellectual property we have around an, an ingredient called heme, which is found in every animal. But we've been able to, uh, to, to ferment it from plants and use that as the, the key ingredient that aids in the transition of, of the product and the color of the product. So, so it's meatier, like it's more like meat. It's much meatier. It, 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 that's what we're trying to do. We're, we're, we are simply trying to replicate the animal in every sense. The nutritional profile over time better the animal. Uh, we need to beat the beat the cows, what we say. <laughs> well, and I have to say that in our lunch offerings here at Bloomberg, like often comes up some alternatives. Yeah, I'm not one, quite we sure. had one today. Right, and I'm not quite sure who whose they are, um, so, I, so I can't speak to that. What I am curious, though, too, Dennis, is you guys have been spending a lot on R&D, and you plan to double the size of your R&D team, from what I understand. 
What's the R&D focusing on? And does it include anything like 3D meat, which is something we've started to talk about here Absolutely. at Bloomberg? Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so what we're trying to do is replicate every animal protein that you consume. Uh, there's well over a trillion pounds of animal protein consumed every year. So this market is absolutely massive. It's one of the largest technology markets, if you call it a technology, uh, in the world. And there hasn't been a whole lot of innovation. Uh, we're eating kind of the same products our grandparents ate, prepared kind of the same way with the same nutritional profile. So we're, we're one of the first companies that's focused at the molecular level on re-engineering uh, meat all from plants. And so that's starting with ground beef because it's such an iconic product uh, for most Americans. But focusing on pork, we have a pork product that we shared at CES last year. Uh, we Sausages, uh, we have uh, lab prototypes uh, of basically every meat imaginable, including steak. Uh, and we see a day when we'll be able to offer any protein on the menu in a plant-based form. It might take, it will take a while for us to get there, but that's what we're, why we're investing so heavily in R&D. Are you going to go into also fish? And I know we've got somebody we've been uh, planning to get on the show that's got plant-based shrimp. So I'm just curious, is it just, you can go anywhere and do, and will you? Yeah. Well, well, we believe that the the technology we have, the the intellectual property around heme, which is in every single type of meat in, in, in the world, as well as all we've learned in building the Impossible Burger, gives us the opportunity to compete in all those spaces. You know, for now, it's our primary product is ground beef, but that's going to change very rapidly. What's the What's the exit plan here for for investors? Tim um, and I were both thinking about this. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, look, you're you, you know beyond me. The the I would I would argue the the chief rival um, is a publicly traded company. Um, you've raised a lot of money from a lot of significant investors. Uh, what's the IPO plan? Yeah, well, uh, Pat Brown, our, our founder and, and CEO, he has said that uh, eventually, you know, that we will we will need to go public. We will want access to the public market financings. We'll want ac- access to credit markets as well. Uh, but we'll do that on our own timeline. We're well funded, as you mentioned. We've got plenty of cash in the bank. We have a number of big investments that we're going to be making over the next year in capacity, so in, in manufacturing facilities uh, and uh, and in new products that we'll be launching. Um, at some point in time, it'll be the right time to make that kind of public decision. But but for now, we're we're, uh, we're we're pressing ahead as a private company and continuing to scale our scale the business. Well, and safe to say, Dennis, there's some upside to that to not have to do this R and D and expansion and, and kind of experiment a little bit with maybe some new areas to be able to do it without being public. Well, we our, our shareholders are very supportive of us being very aggressive. They see the size of the market. Um, I, Bill Gates is recently talking about the mm-hmm. importance of developed economies moving to more of a, a plant-based diet or plant-based meats and, and how that's so important for the environment and for the sustainability of the planet. That there's a, there's a wave of consumer sentiment, government sentiment, all behind supporting this, this industry. And so our investors are in it for the long game. Uh, if we are sitting here in 10 years, I, I believe a, a large percentage of all Americans' diets will have moved to a plant-based product. And, uh, and that's a very big business opportunity for us, and that's what our investors see. So they can be patient and, uh, and give us some time for that to happen. Is it becoming healthier, though? Like, I look at sodium and all those different things. Is it getting better? Absolutely. So if you look at the, the, the sausage in the uh, uh, Starbucks uh, Impossible breakfast sandwich, as an example, uh, that contains uh, about a third fewer calories 
uh, meaningfully lo- lower saturated fat, no cholesterol whatsoever. So sausage is a is a really indulgent product. It tastes amazing, mm-hmm. but it's got it's got a lot of saturated fat. It's got a lot you know a lot of cholesterol, a lot of calories. So you know in our first iteration, we've been able to reduce that quite meaningfully. And as we continue to innovate, we'll get better. So the product will get healthier, or we'll have different nutritional profiles uh, that as we respond to to consumer demand, and also as we just continue to improve upon our own technology. It really is a technology business. And, and mm. in the past, food has not been thought of that way. That's fascinating. Like to think about it that way. And, and I agree. Dennis, thank you so much. And thanks so much for giving us such a, a large trunk, chunk of time. We really appreciate it. Dennis Woodside, he's president at Impossible Foods on the phone from Menlo Park, California. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk to music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, just got about 13 minutes left in today's trading session. It is time for the drive to the close. Doug Sioka back with us, CEO and partner at Kavar Capital Partners. Roughly $900 million in assets under management, and they are based in Leewood, Kansas. And Doug joining us once again uh, from there. Doug, hey, good to have you here. How are you? Hey, I'm great. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Do you have Kansas? Is it? I mean, do you have Kansas? Is it? Do you have snow? Is it cold? What's going on? <laughs> <laughs> it is uh, beyond cold. It is. Uh, we are in the uh, the middle of the polar vortex. We woke uh, up this morning. It was minus ten. Oh my god! Now plus eight. So we really flipped the script. And uh, the sun's out, which is helpful, but going to be with us uh, below freezing i think for at least another four or five days but, but we were below zero all weekend crazy. that is crazy but you got power right and you're safe it's rolling yeah it's rolling. for the first time i've been here 20 some years i've never seen it happen before they're rolling the grids uh, around town with some regularity so i hope that we stay connected for the extent of this conversation hey so so what does that mean though for for you moving forward just i mean if this is like the first time in decades that you've experienced this i mean does that mean that you're gonna go out and buy a generator does it mean that you're gonna make changes to your home uh, probably neither, Tim, but I might consider either if I actually owned any tools. But the reality <laughs> is, this is, this is such an outlying event that I don't think we'll make much in the way of lifestyle adjustments, you know, in anticipation of it being more regular. But Doug, how does it make you think about climate change and the financial impact it is having, the economic impact it is having on our world? I mean, I go back a few years and people are like, eh, climate change, it's you know, we don't have to think about it. And increasingly, it's it's much more of a story that impacts all of us on an economic level and a financial level. Yeah, I, I think that's a great thought, Carol. And I do think it is not inconsistent with the way a lot of information is transmitted. I mean, with its immediacy, its intensity, and then, you know, whatever we feel is appropriate reactivity. But you know, I think that it's, it's so dispersed. And hopefully what we learned or what, what other cities and, and communities have learned in dealing with something like this will be something that can be leveraged in more widespread elevation of people's knowledge base and preparedness in the future. But it's just, it is undeniable that it's something that is going to have an impact on cash flows, profitability, dispersion of assets. And if you don't take it into consideration as an investor, I think it's to your own peril. So to that end, Doug, where are you seeing opportunity in the markets right now? Yeah, we, we see a lot of opportunity, Tim. I mean, I think 
you, know, you look at the market and, and hitting new highs and, and you know, but seemingly each day and each week, it was so funny a couple weeks ago and the 3.5% downturn in the market in the worst week since October and really thought that might have some traction until the following week and it was the best week since October and then we returned an all-time high last week. And, you know, we do still think that there's a lot of opportunity in certain sectors of the market if those rotation, which is certainly underway, continues to demonstrate some traction because we're very bullish on the economy in 2021. It's just a function of finding the appropriate assets to have that reflected in areas of the market that are not overvalued. Well, and I know we don't normally talk specific stocks, but what about areas? Because we've spent a lot of time, Doug, talking about the small cap space. We talked about micro caps, which are really outperforming uh, this year. Where do you see the opportunities? Yeah, in a few areas. You know, we are big believers in that there are going to be some very permanent and positive positive residual impacts from the pandemic. And finding those opportunities should provide some pretty interesting and outsized return potential and opportunities. And within that um, uh, intro, like we love fintech, right? If you think of, it's really amazing, just a year ago, how much, how many, what percentage of all transactions were still consummated in cash in this country, right? And then you flash forward to where no one wants to touch cash of their own, no one wants to touch someone else's cash, no one's leaving their homes. And it just ushered in this, this, this incredible opportunity for digital exchange of goods and services. So that's one area. You know, healthcare and life sciences did very well as a sector last year. We think it's not even scratched the surface of its potential. You know, hopefully the hurdles to get life-saving products and formularies to market have now been permanently and positively lowered. That's going to usher in kind of a whole new generation of interesting life sciences and biotechnology companies. And then certainly, uh, even within in emerging markets, we actually talked about this, I think, when I was on in December, mm-hmm. and seeing EM gain prominence this year because of the labor and intellectual capital outsourcing that's taking place with no barriers, right? Because if you can't go across town, there's really no difference between going across an ocean. And we think they're going to continue to enhance margins, introduce new opportunities, the weakening dollar uh, is, a, is a big part of that, as is sort of the... the, the the demand that is pent up for the consumption of a lot of natural resources that are indigenous to certain parts of the EM world. Are you planning for some sort of a correction here, Doug? You did say a few moments ago that, you know, the, the sell-off that we saw a couple of weeks ago, you thought it might have some legs. Are you expecting some sort of correction, some sort of sell-off in the near future? I mean, I don't know, Tim, any more than we would typically be expecting such in any given year. Right, I think I saw a couple weeks ago that the average pullback in any 12 months or calendar year is about 14.5% going back to 1980. And last year we had obviously the whopper of all pullbacks. We also had two you know, little aftershocks, one in September, one in October. In 2019 we had none. In 2018 we had a big one in the fourth quarter. It would be hard-pressed for us to escape a drawdown, I think, this year that wouldn't be on or around that average pullback. Um, because the market, as I said earlier, is reasonably overvalued if you just consider the market, and that's a big part of its composition is because of the, 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 the mega caps and the tech, sector, tech, mm. sectors preem- tech sector's preeminence. But we still think if you consider some of the other areas that have not taken place, not, that not participated last year, there's still areas in the market that will command opportunities to put dry powder if we do get that. What do you, hey, what do you make, um, Doug, of Treasury yields uh, up to the highest since February of 2020? Uh, our story says that the stimulus impact still kind of getting priced into that trade. But do those higher rates still low historically 
start to get pro, you know problematic anytime, or, or are they an indicator of something that we need to be concerned about going forward? Uh, I think you should always be concerned. I right now think, Carol, we're in the positive aspects of what's taking place, right? Mm-hmm. If you think we've seen a lift and we know the Fed is anchored to the front end for probably at least 18 months, maybe a little bit longer, so if we see a lift in interest rates, it's positive for three reasons. One, a steep yield curve is positive for financial services companies, which are still you know, the key catalyst to expressing money into the economy to exhibit that multiplier effect. Two, better savings rates. We have so many clients and there's so many people out there that don't want to be forced into taking risk to earn a reasonable rate of return for a conservative allocation. And three, you get this return of constructive pricing power in the form of modest inflation. That's positive, right, for companies, particularly as we see kind of the global economy opening up and they're exhibiting and experiencing more demand for what they're selling. A little pricing power, I think, is very positive for valuations and cash flow generation. Well, Democrats right now are trying to get other Democrats, some more moderate Democrats, on board with that $1.9 trillion spending package from the Biden administration. Doug, what do you want to see out of Washington? What's effective policy? You know, I, I don't know that we did we get that much, Tim. I don't know that we need that much, particularly because I think it's logical to think there's going to be an in- infrastructure bill that gets introduced in the not-too-distant future after the blessing of the next uh, pandemic stimulus plan. Um, I think that the setup in Washington is actually pretty positive for the market and the economy in general, uh, because there is that, that quote-unquote beneficial gridlock. But I don't feel like any single party is going to have this clear pathway of ramrying legislation that's super partisan. I think because of that, regulation stays reasonably low, taxes stay reasonably low, and that is, by and large, pretty positive for the economy and subsequently the market. Hey, just got 30 seconds left here, 40 seconds. Doug, is there one place in the market you definitely don't want to be right now? Oh, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I think that's a, hard, that's a hard call to make. I mean, I think you know, some of the speculation like that, that we're seeing around – um, the SPACs and some of the cheerleaders and the short squeezes. And, you know, it was interesting back 20 years ago, right, those FOMO instincts were hard to turn back during the dot-com years. But right. I just think super selectivity is really important. And ultimately, if there are no cash flows to discount and no tangible operations to assess, the whole process possesses a lot of speculation. You need to be careful. Hey, I didn't hear you say Bitcoin. <laughs> No, sir. Okay. (laughs) Nothing in that portfolio. All right. (laughs) Doug Sioka, be well, stay warm, uh, and be be safe. Chief Executive Officer, partner at Kavar Capital Partners, roughly $900 in assets under management on the phone from a really chilly (laughs) Leewood, Kansas. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.